There's only one king on the throne. He's our King Jesus. Are you worshiping him today, this morning? I hope you have. Join your hearts with us this morning. Thank you, Cody. Thank you for our praise team and choir leading us this morning. We're so thankful uh, for what you've done today. You've got to be careful when you read the Bible because sometimes there's words in the Bible that are not written uh, by the people of God but are written against the people of God. Job's a great example. There's some places in the Old Testament where you shouldn't read those as if they are the Word of God to you. Now, here's a spot in 2 Kings 19, and I just want to read these words to you. This isn't our text, but I want you to get a sense of the context before we get into verse 14. Just listen to what it says here in verse 10. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Resif, the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? Now, that probably just sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook to you. But to Hezekiah, the king of Jerusalem, it sounded like a threat. And a threat that the king of Assyria could make good on. It wasn't just a threat, it was a promise. And as a result of this letter that's sent to King Hezekiah, Hezekiah becomes desperate. I want to ask you this morning, when was the last time you felt desperate? When was the last time that you felt hungry for the Lord's presence? One of the key attitudes that led to the recent outpouring of God's Spirit at Asbury College was a sense of desperation to be closer to the Lord. And those who participated testified and those who witnessed testified to the hunger for more of the Lord that filled the hearts of everyone in the room there at the chapel. People drove across the country Hundreds of other colleges were represented during the, the week and a half of revival. Others flew from around the world just to get a glimpse of the glory of God from nations all over the world. And they waited in line, a line that stretched all the way across the campus, just to get into the worship center, just to get into the chapel, to hear from God. When was the last time you were desperate? For the glory of God in your life. We are in a desperate condition in our nation. On pages 28 and 29 of the little one cry book that we've been uh, promoting and putting out for you guys. Byron Paulus and Bill Elif highlight the desperate condition of the nation. 
And I want us to look at that before we go to the text, Daniel. And so the first thing that they say is fatherlessness. There are more unmarried mothers under the age of 30 than married mothers, with 40% of all babies born out of wedlock in the United States, and 48% of all first births to unmarried women. Imprisonment. More than 7 million adults are on probation, on parole, or in jail or prison. The most of any nation on the earth. Perversion. 40 million visitors peruse porn sites on the web every day. With the average age of, a, of first visits being age 11. And the most religious states, the Bible Belt, have the highest percentages. A culture of death since 1973, that's the judgment in the Roe v. Wade case, the total number of American lives lost to abortion is roughly equal to the collective worldwide death toll of World War II, approximately 60 million souls. Now, this is a little dated. It's even more than that now. Chaos and confusion. Biblical cultural standards have been jettisoned by government, the media, and a significant portion of the U.S. population, even within the churches. And lastly, they list bondage. America's national debt continues to grow, and in the future we face $124 trillion in unfunded liabilities, more than the world's GDP, the the total world, the, the world's GDP. $83 $83 trillion, and over $1 million per U.S. taxpayer. I don't know about you, but I don't have a million dollars. And this reality says nothing about the lifestyle of personal indebtedness that plagues U.S. families. Can you feel a sense of desperation? If when you look at the nation around you, you don't feel it, I wonder if you feel it whenever you just simply look at your own home and your own family, and your friends, and your own neighborhood, the people that you're closest to on a daily basis? Do you have a sense of desperation for them? Now Hezekiah, he's the king of Judah, and he has a sense of desperation because of what his enemy has threatened. I want you to understand our enemy is not opposed to our complacency. He's perfectly content when we are apathetic towards sin and the sin in our life continues to reign. He smiles when you shrug off your responsibility to witness for Him. And He laughs when you are lazy. And He's winning when you're simply warming a pew. But on the other hand, Satan is provoked when our God supernaturally begins to revive us. And when we draw near to Him, and He loses territory when you and I begin to share our faith. And folks, that's exactly what was happening in Hezekiah's world and in his kingdom. The people were being revived. And in fact, Hezekiah had even invited the remnant that was still in Israel, the northern kingdom, to come and join them in the revival that was happening in Jerusalem. And and many of them refused to come, but many of them did come. 
And they tore down all of the altars to Baal, and they tore down the Asherah, and the nation was experiencing a presence, the presence of God like never before. And the enemy was provoked. The desperation of the situation drove Hezekiah into the arms of the Savior. Now, this is 2 Chronicles 32. And by the way, the story of Hezekiah is actually found in three books in the Old Testament. That's pretty amazing to me when you consider how little time we spend talking about Hezekiah. He's a great king. But here's the thing. He's in three different books. So here in Second Chronicles, listen to how it says he responded. He got, he, he got uh, the prophet Isaiah, Hezekiah the king, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. They cried out to God because of the desperate situation they were in. And what an example that is for you and me today. Hezekiah's prayer was a prayer of desperation. It was a prayer of devotion to his God. And it was a prayer of decision. I'm not going to back down. I'm going to stand up for my God. And so let's, if you found your, your place there, hopefully you have in 2 Kings chapter 19, we're going to begin reading in verse 14. All of that was just the introduction, by the way. So stand with me. Beginning in verse 14, we'll read together from God's Word. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. And spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the nations of the earth may know that you are God. O Lord, you are God alone. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Hezekiah's prayer of faith. And Lord, we know that it's a desperate prayer. I pray that we would have the desperation for you. I pray that we would understand the seriousness of the situation that we're in. That we would understand that lives are sinking People need to know you. And Lord, that we would turn our hearts to you so that you may revive us. So that we once again can be useful for you and for your kingdom. And that we would lead others to faith in you. Lord, as we look about us, we see threats from every side. But Lord, we know that you're on the throne and there is nothing that can stand against us. When you stand for us. We pray Father that you would bless now the reading of your word. And the hearing of your word. 
that we might be obedient to all that you reveal. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. When your prayers become desperate, I believe that they will resemble Hezekiah's prayer. When you have a desperate prayer for revival, and remember, prayer always precedes revival. Always. But when your prayers become desperate like the, like the prayer of Hezekiah, number one, you will acknowledge the Lord's sovereignty in those prayers. When you come to the end of yourself, you'll find out that God is all you need. And some of us, we need to get to the place where we're at the end of ourselves in order to be revived. We've got to get to that place where we're truly desperate for God to do what only He can do in our lives. As long as you're willing to, to try to stand in the gap yourself and, and, and figure it out yourself, you're not hungry enough for God to do His work in you. The king of, of Assyria had used intimidation and all these tactics to dissuade the people from trusting in Yahweh, including Hezekiah. If you just, you know, you'll back up and you'll read with me in chapter 18, um, in verse 19, he says, uh, the Rabshakeh, which by the way, he's a, he's a high official in the Syrian army, in, in the Syrian kingdom, he was sent to say this to the people, say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? In other words, in whom are you trusting? And everything that the Rabshakeh is going to say after this is like trying to poke the eye of God right in front of the people. By the way, that's a dangerous thing to do. <laughs> you, you, don't want to, you don't want to call Yahweh out on the carpet. You're going to lose every time. But the Rabshika continued to do this, and he tried to intimidate the people to give up. And he says in verse 20, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? He tells them their diplomacy is going to fail. Their prayers to heaven will fail. And then he goes on to say, uh, in whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? And in verse 21, but you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Now, as he says that, you can imagine just a, a, a staff, a, a reed, and you get ready to put your hand down on it to lean on you, to lean on it to catch you. But then you realize that it's, it's splintered at the top. Can you imagine how that would feel? And, and basically what the king of Assyria is saying is, you can't count on anyone. You're all alone. All your friends have abandoned you. That's a lot like what the devil would do to you today. He'll begin to tell you that you're all alone and no one really cares about you. And if you begin to lean on your brothers and sisters in Christ, they're just going to stab you in the back. And that's a lie from the enemy. Why does he do that? He wants to divide us. He wants to separate us because he knows he can't defeat us when we're together. He's a master of division. And then skip down to verse 29 if you're following along in uh, chapter 18. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. He's telling the people, don't trust in the king. He's a liar. 
Hezekiah hadn't lied to the people. Hezekiah had led the people. Hezekiah was the best king that any of them had experienced in their lifetimes. He was a great king. And yet, the enemy wanted them to not follow and submit to that leadership. And then verse 30, don't even trust the Lord. Look at what it says in verse 30. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And then the, the second letter that comes, the letter that comes to Hezekiah, reminds Hezekiah of all the kingdoms that have fallen. These intimidation tactics are meant to cause Hezekiah to become so fearful that he'll simply give in and give up. But instead, they drive Hezekiah to the place of prayer where he goes in desperation to the Lord. And the first thing that he, the first thing that he does is he acknowledges the absolute sovereignty of his God to handle the situation. I wonder... Have you acknowledged the sovereignty of God over your situation today? Whatever you're facing. Whatever situation that you look out and you see and it looks desperate and it looks difficult. Have you brought it to the Lord? The situation was absolutely beyond Hezekiah's control. And truly the army of Assyria was the greatest army in the world. And Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, was the greatest king on the earth in that time. Sennacherib's army was too large for Hezekiah to conquer. But Hezekiah's God was too big to be defeated. And Hezekiah knew that. C.H. Spurgeon said this in one of his sermons. He said, there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions. That sovereignty overrules them. And that sovereignty will sanctify them all. What is God doing? He's teaching us to trust in Him and call upon Him. And so Hezekiah says, You, O Lord, You've made the heavens and the earth. You're the king of all the kingdoms of the earth. You're God alone. All of these other gods, they've fallen. They've been burned in the fire because they're not gods at all. You are the only God. And he surely was the only God who could save Hezekiah. You know, I think about those words, you've made heaven and earth, and I think about the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know what I think about those words? If I believe that, if I can believe that, and I can come to believe that my God created the heavens and the earth, then won't I believe that everything else is okay? Amen? If He can make the heavens and the earth, and He makes everything that's in them, and the earth is His, it all belongs to Him, the earth is His and the fullness thereof, if I know that, then I know that I'm going to be okay as long as I put myself in His hands. And so when you pray a prayer of desperation to God, you have to acknowledge His sovereignty over the situation. But secondly, that prayer of desperation is going to cause you to invoke the Lord's scrutiny. Now, I know I'm using that word scrutiny 
there. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But Hezekiah knew that the Lord could see and hear everything. Whenever he prays this prayer and he asks the Lord to open his eyes and to, to incline his ear, he's not saying that God is deaf and mute. And he just needs to, uh, he needs to hear, open, have his ears opened up. He's not saying that the Lord is blind and he can't see what's going on. He knew that the Lord could see everything that was done and said by Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh. And, and not just him, but on both sides. But Hezekiah was asking the Lord to judge Sennacherib. He's asking for the Lord to make a judgment in this case. In other words, to not just see and hear, but to scrutinize. To make a judgment. There's several passages all throughout Scripture. There's too many to, to name them all, but I've just chosen a few here that speak of the scrutiny of the Lord. Psalm 33 and verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those whose hope is in His steadfast love. Psalm 34 and verse 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears toward their cry. Proverbs speaks of the scrutiny of God. In verse 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 21 for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Chapter 15, verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Proverbs 22, verse 12, The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor. And even the Apostle Peter in the New Testament, uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The word scrutiny comes from a Latin word that means to sort through garbage. That's what the word means. When we ask the Lord to look into the situation, we can expect him to scrutinize. He's going to see not only the garbage of the other person, but he's going to see our garbage too. And I want you to think about that because everywhere in this, te in, the, in, in this passage as well as in other places, the Lord knows good from evil and he's perfectly just. Now, Sennacherib has blaspheme against God. He's poked God in the eye and he said, your God can't do anything. But I want you to understand this. Hezekiah wasn't a perfect man either. And whenever he invoked the scrutiny of God, he was asking God to look at him as well and judge him as well. And folks, that's a hard place to be. And I, I sub, I'll submit to you, the only way you can pray a prayer like that against the enemy is if you're in an absolutely desperate place. The only way you can say, God, look at my heart and judge me and then, Lord, destroy my enemies it's for you, be, you to be in such a desperate place, you don't mind if God sees all your garbage. Hezekiah wasn't perfect. In fact, we see in Second Chronicles, Hezekiah did not make a return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. And we're going to get to this story a little bit uh, in our next uh, sermon. Therefore, wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. But, here's verse 26, Hezekiah humbled himself 
for the pride in his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Hezekiah deserved God's wrath, but what was the difference between him and Sennacherib, the king of Assyria? Hezekiah humbled himself before the Lord. As he went to his knees, he took his garbage to God. And he acknowledged his own sinfulness before God. And then he asked God to look upon the evil that Sennacherib had committed. Are you so desperate that you would allow the Lord to sort through your garbage today? When you look at the situation around you and me and we see all the things that we talked about, the statistics that I laid out for you, when you look around you and you see, golly, the world's a tough place, then you look on the inside and you see what God sees and you say, well, I'm really messed up on the inside too. Folks, you can't allow that to keep you from praying the desperate prayer for revival. You got to be willing to put that garbage before the Lord and say, God, you see everything. You see what's in my heart. You see what's all around me. And God, you're the only one that can set it right. As long as you're hiding it from the Lord, as long as you're keeping your sin from God, you are not hungry for revival. And Hezekiah was so hungry for God and desperate for Him to intervene in the situation that he asked God to look straight at him and see exactly who he was on the inside. And know that even though he stood there in front of the flame of God's sight, he would endure that test because he had trusted in his God. Daniel Daniel prayed a similar prayer in Daniel 9 verse Uh, Daniel 9, verse 18. He said, "Oh, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. I want you to hear that, folks. Just stop here. I want you to hear my heart on this. Because as we pray for revival, We're not simply asking God to revive all of those people out there whose hearts aren't right with God. Lord, fix our nation because it's so messed up. Lord, fix our community because it's so messed up. Lord, intervene in our situation because they're evil and we're good. No. A desperate prayer for revival says, Lord, fix me. Fix me because I'm broken and I need you. And so Daniel's prayer, he says, we we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. He's watching me even though I fail him on a daily basis. And he loves me and he's willing to forgive me, a sinner. And so we have to invoke the Lord's scrutiny over us as well as 
those around us. And then lastly, when we pray that desperate prayer, that desperate cry for revival, we will entreat the Lord's security. To entreat means to seek it, to draw near to it, to desire it. And the security of God is preached all throughout Scripture that those who uh, abide in the presence of God will, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Hezekiah looked around him and he saw men and women and children in peril. He mentioned the children that were coming to the point of birth but had no strength to be delivered in, in chapter 19, verse 3. He says, the day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God, will, uh, your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom the master of Assyria has sent to mock the living God, and he will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So he's calling Isaiah to, to pray for the nation. The threat is real. And those around us are in true spiritual danger. The consequences of us not becoming desperate for the souls around us are devastating. Eternities are at stake. And if we don't get to the point where we're absolutely desperate and hungry for the presence of God, we will lose the opportunity to reach them. The safest place that you and I can be, though, is in the hands of the Lord. The enemy has absolutely no authority over us when we're in the presence of the Lord. Psalm 91, He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Zechariah 2 and verse 5 has been called God's firewall. You know what a firewall is, right? It keeps the, the viruses off of your computer. You know what a firewall is? Listen to what it says. And, and I will be to her, talking about the people of God in Jerusalem, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. When you run to the Lord, there's protection there. From the enemy. When you run to the Lord, there's victory over the enemy. When you run to the Lord, bondage is broken. When you run to the Lord, everything in your life that doesn't make sense begins to make sense. The safest place you can be is in the hands of the Lord. I remember whenever I was visiting with my mother, and at that point in time, she was not living in a, in a house. She was living in a, a trailer, in a trailer park. And I was visiting with her, had the family over at her house, and that evening the sirens began to wail uh, in Richland, Mississippi. And when the sirens go off in Richland, that means take cover. But here we are in a tin can. And we're under about eight gigantic pine trees. If you know anything about pine trees in a tornado, they're absolutely deadly. Because the tops get snapped out of them and they'll fall. And so here we are in the trailer and the sirens are wailing all around us. And we don't know exactly what we're going to do about this because we're looking at the radar. The tornado is coming directly at us. The threat is real. Our lives are in danger. And my mother remembered that the police station was just on the other side of the neighborhood. 
And that they had said that if you ever needed a shelter, you could go to the police station. A fortified brick structure. Cinder block and brick. And so we got everybody in the car and we drove over and we waited out the tornado that came through. We waited it out in the fortress of the police station. And we got to eat popcorn and watch the, the radar live from the police station. It was a wonderful time knowing that we were safe and secure, but we felt terrible about the people that were on the outside. And many people, many people lost their homes and some lost their lives that night in the tornado that we ripped through. Thankfully, my mother's trailer only had a few limbs that fell on it. But the safest place that we could have been right there was in the fortress. And the question I have for you is, are you in the fortress? And listen to what he, what he goes on to say in his prayer. He says, they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone. You see, all of the things that the, the world trusts in will lead us down the wrong path and will leave us high and dry and will leave us desperate. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms in the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus? One day, all of this is going to burn. The Bible speaks of the day of judgment that's coming. If you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are vulnerable. You're in danger. You could spend eternity without Him if you reject His offer. But He's saying to you today to come to Him. Now let me just give you the rest of the story for just a minute before I call us to our invitation. Sennacherib is set to be the king of the world. And God spoke through the prophet Isaiah to Hezekiah and He said this. He said, Sennacherib, that king... He's going to get a, a spirit of uneasiness. His mind's going to start playing tricks on him and he's going to believe that he's got enemies on every side. And he hears a rumor that Cush, the, the king of Egypt, is coming up and he's going to take him. And so he runs back to Assyria. He flees and he goes to, into his inner chamber and he goes in to pray to his God, his false God. I won't even say his name. But he goes in to pray to a false God to help him. And while he's in, in his inner chamber, his sons come in and they murder him. Right there in his inner chamber. And then his son, those two sons, they flee, uh, go into exile, and his son takes the throne of Assyria. And then pretty soon the kingdom of Assyria falls to Babylon. Now you think about that for just a minute. What seemed like the most desperate situation that couldn't be handled whenever Hezekiah took it to God, took it to the Lord, immediately it became nothing. He took care of it completely. He ended the threat. And without, without any soldier having to put on armor, take up arms, no one died in a battle. The king of Assyria died before his false god. I wonder today, where's your trust? 
I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to, I want you to think about this. If you're, if you're sensing any desperation at all over the situation that's around you, over the lives around you, over your own life, if you're feeling anything about how, how this is just too difficult for you, I want you to take that desperate prayer to the Lord right now. And I want you to acknowledge His sovereignty. And then I want you to to invoke and invite His scrutiny. I want you to invite Him to look at you, to turn His eye to you. I know that's hard. I know that means that He's going to see everything that's in there. But I'm telling you, there's no way for you to get past this unless that takes place. Let him see what's on the inside. Let him see even what's not supposed to be there. Confess it to him. Say, say, Lord, I I admit to you that I'm wrong right here. I admit to you that I have sinned right here. Confess that to the Lord. To confess simply means to say the same thing God says about your sin. So I'm going to say the same thing about it. It's sinful. It's wrong. It has no place in my life. Take it to the Lord. Invite His scrutiny. And then, I want you to entreat. I want you to run to His security. Peter said on the day of Pentecost that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you'll call upon His name right now, not only will He save you, He will make sure that the fire of revival never goes out in your heart, that you will Follow Him for the rest of your life if you put your faith and your trust in Him and no enemy can prevail. You will have absolute victory in your life if you run to Him. Are you desperate this morning for God to do a mighty work in your life? If you're turning to Him for the first time today, I want to lead you in a prayer. Because Jesus paid everything for you on the cross. And He's alive today. And if you will call on His name, He will save you. So just pray this prayer in your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. I've done things that I know are wrong, and I've failed to do the things that I know are right. And I deserve the penalty for my sin. But Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that you were raised again and that you are on the throne and that you are sovereign over all things. So Jesus, I I run to you today. I ask you desperately, save me a sinner. Make me a new person. Pour your spirit into me. Thank you for my salvation. And I'll spend the rest of my life loving you and living for you. And when I die, I'll be with you in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now would you stand with me? This is our invitation. And this is your opportunity. That if you're trusting Jesus for the first time this morning, you prayed that prayer, you meant it with all your heart, share that with us so that we can encourage you, so we can offer to you to be baptized. We're going to have baptism in the bay today as long as it's not thundering and lightning. We'll have baptism out there and you can be baptized this morning. If you need to get your baptism on the right side of your salvation, you can be baptized this morning.
But we also want to encourage you with, with resources that will help you grow and, and allow you to be a part of a, a small group so that you can serve along the saints and learn God's word together with God's people. So you come during this invitation. Let us know what Jesus has done for you. If you need prayer, our altar counselors will be here and they'll be ready and willing to pray for you, with you. And if you'd like to join Myrtle Grove Baptist Church, you come. This is your invitation. Let us sing together. Have thine own way. Meet it with all your heart. Have thine own way.